can have a seat. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. I grew up in a church very much like this one, Bible church. I was in it before I could even talk. So I I really spent my whole life in a Bible church, uh, getting familiar with the things that a church does. And I remember as a kid that there was one particular thing that we did as a church that never made sense to me, and that was communion. Everything else seemed to kind of make sense. So we'd get together and we would sing about how great God is. That, that makes sense. And then we'd bow our heads and we'd pray and talk to God. That made sense. And then the preacher would get up and he would explain the Bible to us. That made sense. But then once a month, at the end of all of that, he would have some men come forward and pass out these stale little crackers and like a little thimbleful of juice. And I remember as a kid, it's the end of the service. So you are just starving at that point. All you want is for it to end so that you can go to lunch. So you're really not satisfied by a little cracker and a little bit of juice, but then you really don't want the cracker and the juice when the preacher reads some verse about this being the body and the blood of Jesus, and that just sounds gross. I don't get that, but you can't not eat the cracker and the blood because there's like all this communion peer pressure in the row around. Your parents are there, and your aunt and uncle are there, and they're looking at you, and so you got to eat the little cracker, and you got to drink the juice. I just always remembered that, that there was never enough juice to wash the cracker down my throat, so I I always be like gagging at the end, just a little more juice, come on. So, so then the service would end and you would leave and I'd always leave wondering what in the world was that about? What I did figure out at a very young age is that my friends who went to high churches like Catholic and Episcopalian, they got wine with communion, whereas we just got juice. I thought that was pretty awesome that they got to, to drink wine. I didn't know what that was all about. I figured, I guess my parents chose the wrong denomination because they're getting it better than us. So needless to say, as a kid, I did not get the point of communion. I didn't understand what it was about. Now that wouldn't be a big deal if it wasn't for our passage this morning. Look with me right in the middle of our passage in chapter 11. Look with me in verse 27. Paul says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Wow. So, so if, I, if I eat this cracker and I take this cup of juice in a way that is somehow unworthy, I'm guilty of Jesus's body and blood, like guilty of his death. That sounds really serious, but it gets worse. Look at verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So if you, if you take communion, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy way, you're actually eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And, and God takes it so seriously that, that some believers in Corinth who were taking communion in the wrong way, God was bringing discipline into their lives. They were becoming physically weak. They were growing sick. And some of them were falling asleep. And that's just Paul's really nice way of saying they died. That's his euphemism for death. So in other words, Paul's saying God is killing believers in Corinth because they are taking communion in the wrong way. I remember reading and studying that as a young man for the first time and being really scared because here is this ritual, this ceremony that I had done from my earliest years in the church without ever understanding it really. And yet here's this passage telling me that if you don't do it right, if you don't do it in a worthy way, that God will judge you and it can be as serious as life or death. It terrified me and it should because that's the point of these verses. Paul is trying to put a little bit of the fear of God in us when we celebrate communion. 
He wants us to understand how serious this thing is. When we gather together like we'll do at the end of this service, when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, Paul wants us to understand this is life and death serious in the eyes of God. God takes us incredibly seriously even if we don't. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time trying to understand the meaning and and the significance of the Lord's Supper. And even more important than that, we're going to try to understand what is it that we need to do ahead of time so that when we take communion, we're doing it in a way that is worthy, a way that, that pleases God instead of angers God. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Let's start with, with the most basic question of all. What is communion? What is communion about? What does it mean? What's the significance of it. Often we tend to get hung up on, on practical matters about communion. How often should you celebrate it? How should you celebrate it? Should it be juice or should it be wine? Those things don't really matter to God. Th- those are, are secondary issues. What matters to God is that you understand what you're doing, that you mean the right thing when you gather together to take communion. So he cares that we understand it, that we know what it means. What does it mean? Well, there's three main views in the church. Three main views in Christianity. Let me walk you through them real quick so you kind of get some context for our view. The first view, the first answer to the question of what communion means is the re-sacrifice view. This is common in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, not all Roman Catholics believe this view. Let me be real clear about that. But this is the official view of the Roman Catholic Church. They celebrate the Lord's Supper during Mass every time they gather for Mass, and they call it the Eucharist. And and at the Eucharist, they believe that a miracle occurs in the Mass where, where the bread and the wine become literally the body and the blood of Jesus while still tasting and, and feeling like bread and wine. That miracle they call transubstantiation. Now, we, we don't agree with that, but that's not a big deal. That's a minor disagreement. What we strongly disagree with is that according to this view, the way that bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, is that at Mass, Jesus is re-sacrificed for sin. That every time you gather for Mass, he is being re-sacrificed. Pope Pius IV put it this way, the Lord's Supper, the communion, is a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice for the living and the dead. So every time you gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper at Mass, Jesus is re-sacrificed to pay for your sins since the last time that you took Mass. We strongly disagree with that. The Bible is really clear. Jesus died once. And that one death of Jesus on the cross is all it will ever take to pay for all human sin, past, present, and future. Hebrews 10 is is where we would turn, Hebrews 10 verses 12 and 14. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we, we love our Roman Catholic brethren. We, we want them to know, though, that, that they don't need to re-sacrifice Jesus because he did it once. He died on the cross, and that took care of all sin, past, present, and future. You don't ever need anything else. Okay, so we, we don't agree with that view of communion or, or the Lord's Supper. Second view that you'll commonly hear in churches here in America is, is the view that communion is a gift of more grace from God. This is a Reformed view. It was held by the great Reformers Luther and Calvin. Now, Luther and Calvin disagreed about what the bread and wine are. Luther and his followers, Lutherans, they believe that the, the bread and wine really have Jesus in them. Jesus is there. You're, you're partaking of Jesus in a spiritual sense. Calvin and his followers, the Presbyterians, disagree. It's just bread and wine, they would say. But that's not a big deal. They disagree on that, but they agree on the important thing. What they agree on is that when you are taking communion, you are actually taking into your body special grace from God. 
So, so communion, it's like a mystical gift of, of greater strength that you're receiving from God to make it through another week. That's why both denominations, they celebrate it every week because you need to come to church and receive that, that extra measure of grace and strength from God for the week ahead. And that's a beautiful view. There's a lot I really love about that view. I, I don't see huge problems with it. I just can't find a lot of biblical support for it. Uh, the Bible doesn't present communion as a time when we're receiving from God. The Bible presents communion as a time when we are celebrating that which we have already received. And so that's our view, that communion isn't some special, special gift of special grace, that, that communion is a time when we gather as a family to, to remember and to celebrate what Jesus has already done for us, what he's already given us. So look with me. Let's look again at the passage, starting in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so when we gather together for communion, what we are doing, first and foremost, you notice a word that Jesus repeated twice, we are remembering. We are remembering what Jesus did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. Communion looks to the past and it it remembers the the gift that Jesus gave on the cross. So communion, it's, it's kind of like Memorial Day in our country. So Memorial Day, I think it's the last Monday of the month of May. What do we do? What do we We gather as a nation and together publicly we say thank you to those who died for our freedom. Now hopefully we're thankful for their sacrifice every day of the year. Hopefully we're we're remembering what they did 365 days a year. But one day a year we stop what we're doing, gather together and publicly say thank you. That's communion. Hopefully we're we're thankful for Jesus' gift every moment of every day. Hopefully we're individually saying to God, thank you for the gift of your son seven days a week. But on communion day we gather together in public as a family to say thank you. Thank you for what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago on the cross. Communion is our memorial day when we together remember what Jesus did for us. And, and that's what actually the cracker and the cup are about. That little cracker, that bread, it represents Jesus' body. The reason that it's so small, it's really like a broken cracker, is, is to remind us that Jesus' body was broken on our behalf. So it's not just the body of Jesus, it's the broken body of Jesus. That's the idea behind the bread. It's Isaiah 53, 5. But he, that is Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. So when we eat that tiny little stale cracker, we're remembering that this is Jesus' body. It represents his, his broken body that was beaten and whipped and abused and pierced and crucified as a payment for my sin so that I could be set free from from the wrath of God. Mel Gibson made a movie, The Passion of the Christ, that I've only seen one time. I feel like as Christians we're supposed to see it lots of times. I've only ever been able to see it once because it is so incredibly brutal. It made me sick. It made me nauseous to to watch the violence that was poured out. Now, I, I look at that movie and I think, 
there's some things I would change, maybe not so much time on the whole Satan thing, maybe a lot more time on resurrection because that's so crucial. But what Mel Gibson got right was the suffering of Jesus. It should make us nauseous. It should make us recoil when we see the brutality that was poured out upon our Savior. It would be tragic for any human being to suffer what Jesus suffered, his body beaten and pierced and whipped. That should be tragic for anyone to go through that, but it's even more tragic for Jesus because remember, unlike us, he never did anything wrong. He always only loved people. He served, he gave, he was selfless. He never lied, he never cheated, he never stole. He did not deserve any part of that. And and what's even more amazing is that unlike any of us, when Jesus suffered, he's the one and only human being that in the middle of his suffering, he could have said enough. Remember, he's God, he's creator. His infinite, unlimited, almighty power. And so at any moment, like when they're whipping the skin off his back, he could have said, enough, I've had it. When they're beating that crown of thorns on his head, he could have held it, guys, enough, that's it. When they're pulling out the nails to hammer through his wrists, enough, that's it. But he never did. He never stopped it. He never said enough. He filled up the full measure of his sufferings unto his dying breath. Why? To pay the price for our sin. He allowed his body to be broken and pierced and whipped and abused and crucified to set us free so that we could be healed. His body was broken so your body can be healed. That's what we're celebrating when we take that that little cracker. We're remembering this is what it cost for me to be healed, for me to have life. Jesus' body had to be absolutely destroyed. So that's, that's the cracker. The cup. It's not just a cup of juice. The cup represents Jesus' blood. God has been preparing us all the way back from from the Old Testament, from the passage that we read from Exodus this morning. God has been teaching his people about the stain of sin. He wanted them to understand that, that when you break the rules that God has designed into the universe, when you do that which is wrong, that which is evil, when you commit a sin, you cannot easily wipe away that sin. It actually takes something very precious to to cleanse a person of the stain of sin. It takes blood. And so in the Old Testament, God gave his people the, the gift of the sacrificial system. They would take an animal and they would kill it to pay for their sins so that they could be forgiven. So quite literally, a, a father of a family, as they're paying for their family sins, he would take a lamb and he'd take it to the temple and they would slit the throat. And, and the parents and the kids would watch as that lamb bled out all over the ground. They'd watch until the last drop of blood was spilled. And then they'd put that carcass on the altar and burn it as an offering to God. And so over the years, over the generations, the Jews learned the only thing in the universe that can cleanse a person of the stain of sin is blood. But there was a problem, a problem that God knew about all along. Didn't surprise God. He knew it was coming. No animal's blood can cleanse a human being of sin. So we're not equivalent A lamb is not made in the image of God. So an animal cannot cleanse us of sin. God talks about that in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They are not a sufficient sacrifice for us because they are not human. They are not divine image bearers. And so all of the countless animals sacrificed in the Old Testament, all the bulls, the goats, the lambs, the birds, they were just a preview of what was coming. God was showing us this is what it takes 
to cleanse you of sin, something must die and spill its blood. God was preparing us for the gift of his son. A human had to die. And to cover all human sin, it had to be a perfect human, a human of infinite value. And so God sent his own son, the perfect son of God, to take on human flesh, to live a a perfect life, and then on the cross to spill out his blood so that our sin could be paid for and set aside. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption is a beautiful word. It means to purchase somebody out of slavery. So Jesus redeemed us out of our slavery to sin, but it was a very costly purchase. It, it cost him his own blood, his life in exchange for our lives. He spilled his blood to deliver us from our slavery to sin and our, our condemnation under the penalty of sin. That's the good news that we celebrate in the gospel. Gospel, that word you hear all the time, just means good news. It's the good news that God's own son, Jesus, died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have forgiveness as a free gift. You don't have to earn God's love. You don't have to earn heaven. It's yours for free based on what Jesus earned on the cross. Jesus did all the work that's required to spend eternity with God. There's nothing you need to add to his effort. All you have to do is believe, is receive, is say, yes, I I accept Jesus' payment on my behalf, his blood to cover me. That's what brings salvation and eternal life. That's what we celebrate in communion. We remember, we look back to what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross when he allowed his body to be broken, when he allowed his blood to be spilled so that we could be forgiven and have life forever. So communion looks to the past. It remembers what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago, but communion also looks to the future. Communion, in communion we celebrate what Jesus will do for us in the future. Look at verse 26. So right after Jesus speaks, Paul says, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Every time you take communion, you're proclaiming Jesus' death in the past and looking forward to Jesus' second coming. When Jesus comes back, you're celebrating that, that the story is not over yet, that Jesus is coming again. And when I was growing up, I, I loved to watch all those Christmas movies that would be on TV leading up to Christmas. I loved all of them, Charlie Brown and, and Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman. I loved to watch all of them, even though some of them were better than others. So Charlie Brown, one of the best movies ever. It's like Oscar quality. Love that movie. Watch it every year. Claymation Rudolph, not so good. Really not a fan of that movie. Really poorly done. Now my, my co-teaching pastor, Matt Morton, and I got in a little fight over that this week. He loves it. He, he bought the anniversary edition DVD of it this year. He likes to see it all the time. I just don't get it. It's really not that great in my opinion. But I still love to watch it. I actually love to see claymation, funky-looking Rudolph on the TV, not because of the movie, but because of what I knew that the movie meant was coming soon. When Rudolph's on TV, it means we're two weeks away from me getting presents. So I love the movie because of what it meant was coming. I got excited because of what it foretold. That's what communion is. That little cracker and that little juice are really not that good, right? They're not that tasty. You like, wouldn't go to a restaurant and pay for that. That's, it's not that exciting to eat the, the bread and, and drink the juice. What's exciting is to think about what they mean is coming next bread and the juice, it tells you this is just a glimpse, just a taste, it's just a hint 
of what you're about to have when Jesus comes back. Isaiah, again, he talks about it. He says, in Isaiah 25, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all people on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So when we celebrate communion, we're we're not celebrating a little piece of cracker and a little cup of juice. We're celebrating that Jesus is coming back and we're going to feast with him forever. We're going to sit at his table and enjoy a banquet with him and with one another. We're not eating crackers and we're not drinking juice. We're we're feasting on the best that this planet has to offer. And as great as that feast will be, it's nothing compared to what good news it will be for the two things that are not at that feast. Death and sadness. They'll be gone forever. They'll be a distant memory. Jesus will swallow them up and remove them for all time. So at communion, we are celebrating the fact that this is not our best life. Not this life, not on this earth. Our best life is when Jesus comes back and he invites us to his table to feast with him and with one another in a perfect paradise where death and sickness and sadness and grief are nothing but a distant memory. So in communion, we are gathering with one another to remember the past and celebrate the future. We're remembering what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross, allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. And we're celebrating that Jesus is coming back for us soon. Could be any time. He's gonna come back and he's going to bring the life, the fulfillment that we have always wanted. So communion, it is God's gift to us as a church. It's, it's this moment that God has given us for us to gather together and remember the past and celebrate the future. And this gift that God has given, remembering the past, celebrating the future, God takes it very seriously. That's clear in what we read earlier. God takes it so seriously that when, when Christians in Corinth took the bread and the cup in an unworthy way, God judged them and disciplined them to the point of actually putting some of them to death. And so that should lead us to ask, what were they doing wrong? Where was their mistake? So, so let's talk for a minute about how to do communion wrong. Look with me starting in, in verse 20. Verse 20. Paul says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. What's going on? Well, Paul says that when, when they gather, they're gathering together and doing just what Corinthians always did. See, in Corinth, Society was highly stratified. You had really rich people at the top of the food chain. You had really poor people at the bottom of the food chain. And never the two should mix. And so the rich held the the poor at arm's length. And so when a wealthy person had a party in his house, he would invite all his rich friends. And he would invite them to come into the dining room and sit on cushions and feast on his best food and drink his best Wine, But their servants, their slaves, whom, whom they would have many, they were forced to, to sit on the ground out in the atrium, out in the courtyard, where they would be fed stale bread and, and cheap wine. And, and, and they're able to look in. I mean, that was the irony of it. They're sitting there on the hard ground, looking in through the window, seeing the feast, seeing the rich gorging themselves and getting drunk while they eat crumbs. 
and the rich could care less because that was how life worked in Corinth. They cared nothing about the poor. Unfortunately, that same ruthlessly selfish attitude had invaded the church. So the church in, in the ancient world didn't meet in buildings. They didn't have buildings like we do. You met in a, in a big home, whoever had the biggest home, so that'd be a wealthy person in your church. And so a wealthy person would open up his home for communion and for the church service. Now in communion in the ancient world, they actually had a meal together. They were small enough to do that. So you would take the bread, then you would eat your meal, then you would take the cup. Okay, when they gathered for communion, this wealthy person would open his home for them to come and here's how it worked. He, he did exactly what everybody did in Corinth. He invited the, the wealthy members of the church to come sit in his dining room. They'd come into the dining room. They'd sit on, on, on pillows. And, and when they ate their meal, it wasn't like potluck like we do where everybody shares alike. No, you, you eat what you bring. And so they would pack food at home and bring it. And so they're the rich people. So they got lots of food and lots of wine. They'd bring all of that into his dining room. And all the rich people would be partying and gorging themselves and drinking to the point of getting drunk. While all the poor members of the church were forced to sit on the ground in the atrium on the outside. Eating whatever crumbs they could afford. Certainly not drinking any wine. Just looking in as the rich in the church partied. That broke Paul's heart to see that same ruthless selfishness invading the church. The, the rich members of the Corinthian church were dividing up the church family just like American Airlines divides up a plane. You know what I'm talking about. They divide the plane. You got first a business class, you got economy class. And, and, and there's this, this curtain between them to separate them. But what's funny is that first in business always gets to sit first. They get to come in and sit in their big chairs and they get served drinks. They're drinking their champagne. And then they bring all economy class, all this economy class. We got to go through the rich section like cattle through a chute just so we see what they have knowing that's not what's waiting for me. Maybe in a little tight seat, I might get water or Coke at some point, and that's it. And so we look at airlines and we say, well, that's okay, because that's business. That's how the world operates. Yeah, it's okay in the world. It's never okay in here. There is absolutely no place for that class distinction and that ruthless selfishness here in the body of Christ. And so when we bring selfishness into the church, it breaks the heart of God. It makes him angry. And when we bring selfishness to the Lord's Supper, God gets furious over that. Furious enough that he was judging, disciplining, and even putting to death believers who were involved in that. So that's how you do communion wrong. That's how you do it in a way that dishonors God. How do you do it right? How do you do communion in a way that pleases God instead of brings judgment from God? Well, look with me. In verse 28, Paul says, But a man must examine himself And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you want to take communion in a way that honors God, it begins with examining yourself, taking some time before you actually take of of the bread and, and the cup to examine your life, to look at your life. To examine yourself means you ask yourself some probing questions. You ask yourself some some questions about how you are thinking, what you are believing, how you are acting. And so let me give you four questions that I want you to ask yourself this morning as we get ready for communion, but these would be the same questions that you need to ask yourself every time that that you come together to celebrate communion. Here's four questions that God wants us to ask to help us to examine ourselves. First, am I taking this seriously or just going through the motions? The Corinthians were not taking it seriously. To them, it was just another meal. 
Another chance to gorge myself and get drunk, not thinking about what this really is, that it is God's memorial and celebration of his beloved son. That's why God got so angry at them, because they did not treat communion as a special thing, as a holy thing. Think about it. What does God the Father love more than anything else? Not you and me, not this world, not heaven. What does he love more than anything else? His son. And so when we take this this ceremony, this celebration that is all about his son, and we treat it lightly, we treat it flippantly, we just go through the motions, that infuriates the father because he loves his son. And so challenge yourself. Am I taking communion seriously? Do I recognize how incredibly serious this is to God the father? Do I appreciate how holy this moment is as we gather together to celebrate his son? First question to ask yourself, are you taking it seriously? Second question to ask yourself, do I appreciate Jesus' sacrifice or do I take it for granted? Communion looks to the past. It looks to what Jesus did on the cross. So we call the gospel, the good news that he died for us, for our sins. But it is so easy to take that good news, that gospel for granted, especially if you've been in the church like me for, for years, for a long time. Well, you've been hearing for years, Jesus died for my sins. You've heard that phrase so many times. It's become just like, oh, the sun is bright. You know that the sun is bright. You don't have to think about it. You've known that's true for so long, you just take it for granted. And so we begin to take the gospel for granted. We take the the death of Jesus for granted. We, We don't even think about it anymore. It's just such a part of our lives. Okay, so if you find yourself taking Jesus' sacrifice for granted, that's it's not okay. God cares deeply about the sacrifice of his son. If you find yourself, like me, taking it for granted, what should you do? Well, here's what I do. I stop and I ask myself, what would my life be like if Jesus had said enough? How would your life be different? If God the Son, in the middle of being whipped and beaten and pierced and abused and crucified, had simply said, that's it, guys, I'm done with this. Gone back to heaven, enjoyed the paradise that was rightfully his, how would your life be different? Well, you would have no blood covering you. And so as you stand before God, it would all be based on your deeds. So I think if it was me, I would be really afraid all the time because I know how many bad things I do. So I'd be stressed out and anxious. Am I possibly doing enough good stuff that maybe I can get past God's judgment? You would never have peace. You would never have joy because your standing before God would be based completely on what you had done. You would have no basis for assurance or security or hope in life if Jesus hadn't died for you. Your life would be absolutely awful if Jesus had said enough. And so think about that for a moment. Reflect on that truth for a moment. It will prepare your heart for communion because you'll find yourself saying, thank God that his son died for me. Otherwise, my life would be absolutely horrible. I can't imagine how bad. Okay, so that's the second question to ask yourself. Do I appreciate Jesus' sacrifice? Third question to ask yourself, do I long for his return? Because remember, communion, it looks at the past, at what Jesus did for us on the cross, but it also looks to the future, to, to the hope that we have in the return of Jesus Christ. So as we prepare for communion, we want to make sure that, that the hope of our hearts is firmly placed on the return of Jesus. The challenge is, in this world, it is so easy to place our hopes in worldly things. A new job, a new relationship, a new house, a new car. 
It's so easy to place our hopes in worldly things because they're tangible. You can see them. You can feel them. So it's easy to get caught up in those worldly things. So, so what do you do if you're getting caught up in worldly things? If that's where your hope is, will you stop for a moment and you remind yourself, biblical truth, none of those worldly things will ever satisfy you. They can't. Why? Because they're worldly. In this world, it is broken and, and cursed by sin. So it is impossible that anything from this world can ever satisfy the longing of your soul because everything here is broken and ruined. So a new job, a new relationship, a new home, a new car, those are good things, but they cannot satisfy your soul. They, they cannot give you the better life that you long for. So many of us in this world, we're going through life assuming that the grass is greener on the other side. If I can just have a change in circumstance, if I can just get to that next stage of life, then I'll have the life I've always wanted. I'll have the satisfaction that I crave. No, you will not. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence in this life. It's just different grass. Grass doesn't get greener until the next life. When Jesus comes back for you, that's when your good life starts. That's when life becomes what you want. Your best life isn't in this life in the next life when he comes back when he fulfills all that you've hoped for and so to get ready for communion just spend some time thinking about where your hopes are what is it that you're hoping for what is it that you're longing for if it's something that's worldly then spend some time reflecting on the fact that's not going to do it for you that's not going to satisfy your soul that's not going to make your life better for long your only hope is the return of christ spend your time building up your hope in his return Fourth question to ask yourself before I ask this, men, if you want to go back and prepare communion, band, if you guys want to come up to get ready to lead us uh, in communion. Fourth question to ask yourself as you're preparing for communion, do I treat others as Jesus has treated me or am I selfish? I'm really happy to say that I have never seen here at Grace Bible Church any of the ruthless selfishness that was present in the Corinthian church. You don't see that. But we all struggle with selfishness. At times in our lives, we find ourselves caring more about our longings, our desires, than other people. And so what are some things that you can do to, to help break yourself of selfishness, to help prepare yourself for communion by caring for other people? I'm going to give you a few practical ideas. The first one is really easy. You want to grow in selfishness like Jesus was selfless? Well, spend some time during worship praying for people around you. While worship is going on, even in a few minutes, while, while we're singing together, spend a few moments praying for the people around you. I guarantee you, in a group this large, there are people here who don't yet know Jesus. They're still trying to figure out whether God really exists, or maybe they're still trying to earn God's love as if it's somehow through their good deeds. Pray for them, that God would open their eyes, that they would see that his love is a gift that Jesus earned and offers for free. Pray for those who don't know Jesus. Pray for those who are here who are suffering, who are in pain, who are in grief. Pray that God would comfort them and meet them in this moment. So really easy to serve people around you. Pray for the people around you during worship. Second idea, park far away. If you are a college student, if you are able to walk, park on the other side of the high school to free up parking spaces for those who are older or for those who are trying to to corral young kids through the doors. It is incredibly hard to do, trust me. So if you can, just park on the other side of the high school and you will actually be serving people on your way to church. It's a beautiful thing. It'll prepare your heart for worship and communion. Another idea, go serve in the nursery or children's Sunday school. 
If enough people go and serve in, in the nursery and in children's Sunday school, then no one needs to serve back there more than once a month. That'd be a great thing. That'd be a great thing because it would mean that everybody in our church is with us three out of four Sundays worshiping together. If we can just have a, a surplus of volunteers. So volunteer once a month to go serve in nursery or child care. Fourth idea, give to those in need. If you know someone who's struggling financially, you can just give directly to them. We don't need to know about it. If you don't know somebody who's struggling financially, really easy thing you can do. Write a check to Grace Bible Church and on the memo line, write Matil. M-A-T-T-I-L, Matil. That is our benevolence fund. All that money, all of it, goes to people in the church who are in need. Maybe they've lost their job, they're losing their home. It's, it's our way of giving to, to those in our midst who are struggling in life. Okay, so whatever you have to do, find some way to serve other people like Jesus served us. That'll help prepare your heart for communion. And I don't know where exactly you are this morning as you look at these questions. I, I think that probably maybe one of them stood out to you. It's probably one of these at least. It was a little bit convicting because you thought, man, I'm, I'm not where I need to be there. So I'm going to challenge you as the men come forward and begin to pass out the plates. Take these minutes while the, while the music plays. Take this time to, to think about that question, to, to ask yourself that question, and to meditate on truth. And go before the Lord and pray. Pray that he would meet you in this moment and that he would help you to to truly appreciate what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago and what Jesus will do for you soon when he comes back. Take this time to reflect on these questions and prepare yourself for communion. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We confess that the bread is not just bread, it is a symbol of the broken body of your beloved Son. We say thank you that That Jesus, the second member of the Trinity who created heaven and earth by just a word from his mouth that he was willing to be beaten and abused for us. And we praise you and we thank you that he spilled out his blood, that the cup that we're taking, it's not just juice, it's the symbol of the blood of your precious son spilled for us so that we could be forgiven and set free from sin. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus paid the price so that we could have life that he gave his body so that we could be with you forever. We thank you for the gift of your son. We remember that this morning. And Lord, we look forward and we celebrate that Jesus is coming back. We look forward to the day, which could be today when he calls us home and we enter into his presence and spend forever with you at your table. Thank you for the future that is coming. Lord, I pray that as we go from here this morning that we would go changed people who are grateful and thankful for the gift of your son Jesus 
We pray that as people look at our lives, that they would that they would see Jesus in us, that they would be attracted to him, that they would want to know about the peace and the hope and the joy that we have through our faith in your son. I pray, Lord, that as a family that we would make much of Jesus. We thank you for his gift, for his sacrifice for us, and for him we say, amen.